Welcome back to this lovely midsummer episode of the Mastering Agility podcast, your favorite podcast when it comes to anything agile. This podcast series is brought to you by agilitymasters.com, providing you with all the agile coaches and scrum masters you need. Make sure to go to the website and subscribe to the newsletter in order to stay up to date with the latest information when it comes to this podcast. Now today, we're talking about one of my biggest passions, Formula One. Formula One is the world's biggest traveling circus. Races are fast-paced, but so is learning. What you see on screen is just one part, but the actual learning starts after the race. Hundreds of terabytes of data are collected each competitive weekend. But what do teams do with that data? And how can they improve the way they work, ultimately to move up the field? Teams work with a massive amount of people, large budget and high pressure. Staying ahead of the competition is crucial. Jurian Kamer, co-author of Formula X, is here to talk about his insights. Jurian Kamer, thank you very much for being here. Welcome. We're going to talk today about Formula One and how they apply inspection adaptation and innovation, all these kind of things. But first, where does your fascination with the Formula One come from? So for many years, I was just a regular spectator. Um, I went to the races a couple times in the Schumacher days, um, watched it from my couch mostly. But then at one point I was able to visit the Rebel Racing Factory in Milton Keynes um, and go behind the scenes and look look at how they work from the inside. And that's when I started to look at F1 from an organization design perspective. So that's when I when I started looking at F1 differently and I basically was amazed by how how much how much things they do inside how they work that are actually applicable in my in my work as change agents as well. Because take us such a such a race weekend. That's obviously vastly different from what happens behind the scenes. But talk us through one of those race weekends. Yeah. So when it comes to race weekends, what is interesting to me, if you want to draw parallels to 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 organizations, is that. They, they have a relentless focus on reflecting and learning, right? So if you, if you work in an, in an agile team, you have your, your, your sprint retrospective. Well, these, these teams, they have over 60 pre-planned sessions focused on reflecting and learning in the whole race weekend. So they spend much more time reflecting and learning than they do actually, you know, doing the work. So like, for example, the race, the race itself, usually between 90 and, and, and 90 minutes and two hours. The race debrief at, right after the race is longer than that, right? They spent at least two hours reflecting on all the different elements that happened and trying to capture learnings. Um, so, um, yeah, those are one; those are some of the things that I find really interesting about race weekends. Is that there's so much um, things happened that so there's so much different things already in the rhythm of these teams that help them uh, find the marginal gains and find the innovations that they need to implement. Do you ever hear those people in, in such a team complain about oh, just another meeting, another retrospective? <laughs> no, not really, actually. Um, it's not that I've worked there, so I, 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 there's no way of really knowing. But what I, what I did sense is that, um, you know, those meetings are not like distractions from work, right? Sometimes in, in, in agile teams, you see that as, oh, no, I, I just want to sit down and do code instead of talk about the work. Um, but, uh, the, for these teams, like the, the, the meetings are actually where, where the interesting things happen and where they, where they learn the most interesting things. So that actually can do their work better. So it's, 
there's a different mindset towards that. Like it's part, just part of the way of working of the team. And it's not like this additional thing that we need to do. Um, so yeah, that, you know, that, that's a big difference. Um, and, and some of these people are in meetings all the time. Like that's just the way, like the, the engineers that, that reflect on, on the data, for example, they need to have conversations with other people to make sense of it and to figure out what is really valuable and what is not. And now from a layman's perspective, all that needs to be done is drive really fast, right? And then you're good to go. Then you can go home, go like uh, Lewis Hamilton, just take your private plane and you're off. Mm -hmm. That's it, right? Uh, so yeah, I mean, if you if you if you have the fastest car um, and you decide you you don't want to innovate on that, um, you'll be at the back of the grid quite quickly, right? So um, if you you know these cars, they become you know, almost like two seconds per lap faster over the course of a season. And everyone is all the time looking for, for gains. Everyone is already, you know, is always looking at each other's car and figure, trying to figure out what are, what are they doing uh, that we can learn from that we can try in our car to see if we can, you know, accelerate uh, beyond what they're doing. So, um, no, this is like, it's, it's, it's very similar to the business environment, actually, where if you bring an innovation to the market, your competitors will take notice. They look at it, they take it apart and they see if they want to, you know, copy that and just uh, do that as well. Um, so if you stop innovating, if you stop improving your way of working, you, you, you know, you gradually, uh, decline and, 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 and die as a, as a race team, but also in the business, I think. How do you make sure then that you're not too transparent? I mean, you can inspect the body work with pictures, with camera, with whatever you want. Uh, but how do you keep that process of innovation not too transparent that your competitors won't be able to get a competitive advantage out of it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the sport is viewed by hundreds of millions of people and every team employs people like every team employs photographers that spy, that spy on other teams. Every team has many people listening to all the team radios uh, of all the other teams um, they track each other's GPS data. So they figure out, you know, in what type of corners a car is faster than, than your car. So they do everything to figure out what is visible. And obviously if the car drives around, you can look at it and see what is different. What they don't know, for example, is what is, you know, what is behind the, the, you know, beneath the engine cover, uh, like what is inside those things are, are usually covered off. Um, no, for example, when there's a crash, you know, the teams rush to the, to the crash site to cover their, their car with a, with a, with a carpet. So, so the teams cannot really look inside the car. Um, um, and when, when there's a big, big overhaul of stuff, they, they cover off the, the front of the garage so that other teams cannot really look what's happening. So, um, yeah, it is quite common obviously to, uh, to be private also how stuff is manufactured, what materials they use, what oils they use. There's many things that are not open to others. How, how do you then continuously maintain such a backlog? I mean, the car obviously is a product, but is there a single list of hey, these are ideas that we need to check? These are our assumptions. How does that work within such a large team? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, the, the car is, um, is never in the same configuration, right? It's like a, it's like a driving prototype. Um, the, you know, one week the car has certain parts in it. The next week they have other parts on it. Um, it continuously evolves. And from, from my study, I found that of the um, roughly 16,000 parts in an F1 car, um, only, only 10% of those parts survive the season. Uh, right. So that, so after a year, like 90% of the parts have been changed or innovated or, or, or upgraded or removed. 
uh, over the course of a season. So, so if you track that back, we're talking about you know thirty thousand changes per season and almost a thousand changes per week. So imagine having that that com- you know, constantly changing stuff. And I think it's in a lot of ways similar to if you have a big software product and you have a couple hundred people working on that product. Like, how do you keep track of versioning and um, and and stuff? That is that is quite similar like the configuration management and the version management tooling is is quite strong in these teams to figure out exactly what part number fits with what other part number right you 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 cannot have the situation where you're repairing a car during qualify session and then the part doesn't fit right so they are pretty you know they have a pretty detailed administration of uh, of what is on the car and what what packages are of, of updates are there um so that's part of it and then what is what is relevant is that all these teams individually uh, work on certain areas, right? So, so an F1 team is is not one big team; it's a team of teams where you know there's a there's a group working on the gearbox, there's a group working on the suspension, there's a group working on the brakes, there's a group working on electronics. Like all these teams have their own responsibility, um, and then integration obviously is 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 the key uh, key importance to to make sure that happens well, and that's where you get um, sets of updates where you know the latest uh, brake sets needs to fit the latest suspension. And so, yeah, there's a lot of, lot of that figuring out happening behind the scenes, but they've, you know, the teams have gone, have become really good at it um, and make sure that the team is always, the car is always drivable. I think that's one of the, the biggest powers of the current Mercedes team. They have been dominant with the last seven years, owning every single competition, both driver and constructors. What do you see happening there? What makes them such a powerful team, powerful team of teams in this case? Yeah, it's it's hard to I I haven't been at Mercedes so it's hard to say but what I what I see from the outside is first of all a very strong servant leadership style from Toto. So if you if you listen to some of the interviews he does um it, he he really talks about an organization that that is constantly evolving and his job is mostly to to make sure that the, the organization evolves to a better state. His job is not to be the boss of the team and tell people what to do. Um, so this very empowering servant leadership style is is ingrained at every level, which which basically means that the engineers are are in the lead, right? So the the people that have the knowledge are in the lead, and it's not the managers or 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 whatever that tell people what to do. So Toto really understands that, and that's the culture that this whole team breeds. Um, and obviously, because they've been so successful, they have a lot of money, and they are able to spend money on the on the most crazy equipment that other teams cannot have. So there's also this. Build up. If you're a successful team, you are becoming more successful uh, over time. But if you compare that, for example, to to uh, to other teams' cultures, so I know from the um, from some of the research I've done this that, for example, Ferrari for a long time, uh, and also Jaguar, which was which was the team that Red Bull inherited, were were very bureaucratic, and people were spending more time writing reports about incidents to send it up the up the chain than that they were uh, spending time on on fixing the actual problems. Um, so those types of shifts um, are are important to to get a team that is constantly improving, constantly on the lookout, and basically get most of the human human uh, talent that's already in the system. So do you see that still being the problem now with Ferrari? For instance, the last championship that they got was. I think it's from top of my head was 2007 with Kimi Raikkonen. Do you still? Yeah, think- I don't know. I think so. so I, I've met Bianotto and talked to him briefly and also looked at the, um, the interviews. I think Bianotto in itself is a, is a 
less of a macho leader than they had in the past. So I think that is that is a good thing, actually, even though some people from the outside might say, oh, he's a bit of a weak leader, but I don't think that's the case. It's hard to say what, what will happen there, but there is a famous story that when Michael Schumacher joined the team, um, he really turned the culture upside down. So he was, you know, the, the drivers are basically the, the, the customer of the product, but he actually went in and say, hey, um, I want uh, I want everyone to be focusing on on what is the challenge. I want um, uh, I don't want to have all this management uh, bullshit. I just want to have a better product, and I'm going to help out and tell you what to do. Uh, I will kind of give you the the right information to do that. And he he changed the culture from from um, you know from a pretty top down management style to one that's more empowering and more based on autonomous teams trying to do the best work of their lives. And that was obviously extremely successful. So. After a couple years with Ferrari, he started winning the championship. Um, and so that's great. Well, it's really interesting to see. Indeed, like he he's known for handing over such an empowerment in, in the information. Yeah. Indeed, but still, apparently, it's really hard for other teams to copy such a thing or to embrace that mindset. What is that thing that makes that so hard? Um, I don't know. I think. Um, yeah, I don't know if I have a good answer to that. I think every team has has their own challenges, their own context, and um, it's it's a um, it's a mix of talent, it's a mix of financial resources, which can buy you technical resources. Um, it's a mix of um, history of the team, how things are done, how things are run, that that over time creates this success. But if you look at across the F one teams, you do see. Uh, almost in every team, this relentless focus on on learning, and um, and and improving, and that's uh, that's the key thing. If you if you don't do that, you won't even be an F one team in a couple of years. So, so those teams, if you in in order to compete in F one, you at least need to do some of those things. Because that's an easy uh, line of parallel to the businesses that we work in in our daily lives, where still innovation seems to be really tough in most cases. Like mm-hmm. teams will be will be said that they're empowered. However, in practice, someone else is still pulling the strings. While this already showcases and underlines that the empowerment of teams is so powerful, yet in our organizations, our mere mortal organizations are, it's it's so much harder. What's hmm. your experience with those organizations? Yeah, so the the... The management paradigms that that many companies still use are based on ideas that are over a hundred years old, right? So the the the, the moment in time where management was invented, uh, management was basically <clears throat> invented to solve a very different problem. Like the problem they wanted to solve is to to get scalability, to get repeatability, um, to to minimize variation, and to scale up production in a time where we had the industrial age, where suddenly through technology we were able to to make a global like make like millions amounts of products, and those products were also very linear and simple, right? At the time, it's like we have to create this. I don't know what it was, what they were creating, like pins or or or, or simple simple products that existed of maybe a hundred parts. And the only thing they needed to do is to get people from the villages uh, that were untrained and unskilled and get them as productive as possible in a factory setting. So that's where the class of managers were created, where they they basically those people were the, are the ones that need to just write down the instructions and, and make sure other people follow it. That's like enforcing uh, instructions. That that whole idea and it worked really well. I mean, the 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 management, those management techniques and management um, principles were were highly successful hundred years ago. But obviously, 
the last decades, um, work is much more based on knowledge work. It's much more based on teamwork. Teams have to solve very complex problems. There's no way to really know the result of, um, of, of, of an action you do. Uh, we still think that we can plan our way into market adoption or innovation. While the reality obviously is that you need to do, you try a hundred thousand things and you kind of use feedback loops to learn and improve. But that is a very new way of thinking that is not easy to change, to change, especially since the people that are currently on the top of these organizations are, are from a different generation. And um, only a fraction of those people understand that the whole management philosophy needs to change. Uh, to in order to to continue to compete in the in the fast changing world. Now going back to Formula One again, you're known with this clip, and I'll I'll include it in in the show notes, where you see the innovation of pit stops going mm -hmm. back to what is it 1960 somewhere, yeah, where it takes over a minute to change a couple of tires. The driver takes actually takes a sip of out of a cup of water or yeah. whatever he drinks, and it takes 67 seconds to change the tire and do yeah. the pit stop. Now, the world record has been set by uh, Red Bull at this point, was it 1.72 seconds or something, something to like change that, yeah. the tires, um, and he's off again. Apparently, these teams have been able to change such a mindset, whereas the leadership in most cases, and also, for instance, Bernie Ecclestone, going back to the the, the previous owner and the previous, previous CEO of the whole circus, they have been able, even though this this Taylorism mindset used to be there too, but to change that completely in a really high pressure environment, would you then say that organizations need to have a bit more of a high pressure environment and able to innovate faster? Um, well, I think, I think outside pressure does help to create urgency. Um, I mean, you know, I've been doing quite a lot of work for, for pharmaceutical companies lately. And there's so much disruption happening and even talking about how to get a COVID vaccine in 12 months, like that creates a force that now suddenly we can just not do all the bureaucratic stuff that we were doing in the past. Like if you go study the, 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 the teams and departments that have created these vaccines, um, you see that they, they were giving, they were given carte blanche and the, the, the engineers were in the, in the lead and there were no managers asking for, for 25 page reports and come to present that to the leadership team to get approval for something. No, no, they were just go, go, go. Right. So, so we, so with with a crisis, we often already know instinctively what works. And the question is, how can we actually organize in a way that that's the default, but without but without the added pressure and the stress that it often creates? So, so why wouldn't we just default to putting experts together and just giving them a clear mission and asking them to just iterate all the time and, and figure it out without having all those manager, management layers and pressure? The other thing from that pit stop example is that um, the, the, the key point in that part, part is that in the past, we were focused a lot of, on efficiency, right? So, so uh, having only two or three people um, changing the tires uh, uh, is a very efficient way of doing it because during the race, only two or three people are doing nothing. Well, in the, in the modern day pit stops, you have over 20 people uh, together working on the car for two seconds. And then the rest of the, way, the race, 20 people are doing nothing. So that doesn't sound very efficient. But it is very effective, and I think that's a shift as well in the from the from the Taylorist mindset that it's not so much about efficiency anymore. It's really about what works and what doesn't work, and um, it's also uh, so in our in our organizations we have focused too much in efficiency, which means that we've kind of um, solidified certain processes and and made them inflexible 
so that we could get consistent outputs at a very high efficiency. But in fact, this this in this this um, the fact that it's so solid um, makes it not very adaptable. And actually, guess what? That adaptive adaptivity is what you need to survive. Um, so there's yeah, that shift is happening too at the same time. So it's good that the, the focus has been taken away from full utilization of people, anyone basically in your team. Like indeed, yeah. you see on TV, you see these guys sitting in their chairs in the pit box looking at their driver, yeah. uh, either winning or losing, but they're continuously monitoring what's happening in yeah. order to have a, a free mind, a clear mind to have that pressure in two seconds to change the, yeah. those tires. Yeah, I can't uh, but, imagine but what that's under, like... Um... It's also not the case that these people have a have a full time job to replace those tires, right? It's not like you're going to see a job posting somewhere. It's like, hey, um, come come work for Red Bull. Uh, we're going to need you two seconds per weekend, right? It's not like that's your full time wow. job. That doesn't exist. The, these the people on the pit stop team have other roles as well, and and that's another thing, another shift that we see in organizations is that very often you're still you know there's this management thinking that we need to create a job and the job has a, as a, as a description of what the function is and what the accountabilities are. And uh, then we hire someone into that and that's it that, you know, uh, that we're never going to change that unless we're doing, we're going to do a reorg. While in modern day organizations, you basically see that we define roles um, of work that needs to happen and people can, can join certain roles. They can have multiple roles actually in multiple teams if they want to. And that actually touches upon human human adaptivity and human um, uh, human skills where uh, we often think of one person can only do one thing and you also get the behavior like, oh, you're asking this of me. No, 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 that's not in my, my job description. So I'm not going to do that. Well, in fact, these teams, like the, the pit stop teams, um, the, you know, the, some, the, there's a truckie on the team. There's an IT person on that team. Uh, there's someone responsible for logistics on the team. They, they have other jobs as well, but they don't need to do that during the race. They can do the pit stop team during the race. So, so the the most adaptive organizations that we've studied uh, have a marketplace of talent and roles, and it's super fluid. It's not like you have to get approval from your manager to take on another job, and it's this whole HR type difficult thing to do. Instead, you just say like, "Hey, I'm going to take on this role," or "Or there's a role available. I'm going to take on this role. I'm going to give back this role to the organization, and I'm, I'm saying that someone else needs to now do this." Um, and you get this marketplace uh, type thing. How do do they deal with context switching then, for instance? Because I can imagine me, myself, if I have to work with two scrum teams and they're both in different domains, I get confused all the time. How yeah. does it work for these guys? And how do they make sure that it doesn't uh, affect their pit stop ability, for instance, too much? Yeah. Well, I think what is what is clear is that during the race, they don't have other responsibilities. Right? During the race, they don't need to worry about logistics and trucks and IT infrastructure that's covered by others or that's that's not a job that happens during that time frame so so I, I don't think that's a problem for them in other organizations you see uh, advantages of people holding only one role and doing that really well um, but you also see especially when it comes to complex problem solving uh, more management work or other work is that it actually is useful to have multiple roles um, and to energize multiple roles and I think that also goes back to the question that you could ask your people, like what is what is the work that you really want to be doing to energize the purpose of the organization? And that is often not just one thing. And it's often not the thing that they're doing at the moment. 
So like imagine having an organization where everyone can actually pick the, 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 the work that they think they can contribute based on their talents and what they think is most important and just having that conversation all the time and energizing the work that needs to happen. Um, it's a similar, like how we work at the ready is quite similar. Like if there's a project coming in, so the ready is the, the, the consulting company I work for. And with our, with our almost 30 people team, um, we have, we're fully self-managing. And if, if a project comes in from a new client, um, and nobody in the team actually feels energized to work on that project, we just say no. Like, it's like, sorry, we, we you know, nobody in the team really wants to work on this. So, so we're going to say no, unfortunately. Um, but if there's a, there's something coming in that's really exciting, you see people shifting from current projects and trying to swarm on that project. And then obviously trying to serve the client of the projects that they leave behind. But, but you do get to energize the work and the roles that you want to energize in the, in our system. That does require a little bit of a luxurious position in that case, because the, if you're a starting firm, you can't say no to most of the things that you get up to speed. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, so that is, that is partially true. I think, um, it depends, right? Obviously, if you if you don't have enough money to to pay pay salaries, then there's a problem there. But there's also a power in saying no to a certain client, um, and it does makes you makes you actually desirable sometimes. So it's a uh, it's good to. But that's more like a, a marketing and and product market fit problem. Like where where do we want to play? Where do we want to? What types of projects are we going to really focus on? I mean, I've seen I've seen a lot of startups that just take every opportunity that comes along, and that that creates so much. Um, there's so, so such a lack of focus that the project becomes diffuse and they're known for nothing in the market and also they won't be successful. So the real kind of the real power for startups, they just say, look, this is the one thing we do and we're not doing anything else. So if you're asking us to do that other thing, we might take your money and be happy, but actually we think in the long term, it's better if we just start continue focusing on what we really want to do. Sounds really interesting. And now going back to what you mentioned about the, um, the context switching and, and having multiple roles within the team. Now I'm sitting at the couch. I'm just watching the races. Mm-hmm. Do these drivers have a second job as well? Or are they just paid oh, yeah. to drive really fast and then they're done? No, they have m- many jobs, uh, I would say. And it depends on like when they're in the car, they have only one job to do, which is you know drive the car as fast as possible and win the race, right? If they're out of the car, they hold responsibilities for for providing that feedback, for um, helping the team develop the car, to work on the simulator. Um, and even outside of that, they have a lot of marketing responsibilities. They have branding responsibilities. They they are they have press responsibilities. So yeah, if you could look at the, the, the full allocation of work from, from an F1 driver, it is actually a lot of multiple roles. Some of them could be distributed to others, but probably a lot of them couldn't. And you also see people picking their, their roles. Like, Kimi is not a big fan of the of the press and media coverage stuff, so he just does does less of that, and I think that's okay in his case. So, yeah, which it, it, is kind of contradictory because he's a well, um, he's well in the lays well in the market for uh, when it comes to the press because he's yeah, so dry like and and yeah. people really want to interview him. Yeah, and apparently because he avoids it or he's really short and to the point that pulls him into the press. That's a good yeah. press thing. Hey, going back to the beginning of this conversation where you mentioned you were talking about teams inspecting and adapting, what are they inspecting? What do they use to really inspect? What forms of data do they look at the body of the the car? How do they do that? I think the answer is everything that they can look at. So, um, like it's the, the, there are over a hundred sensors on the car. So those, those things 
you know, uh, provide data streams in real time um, from both cars. So that's one point. There is uh, a lot of data on uh, on GPS. So you know, where where do these cars go fast on the track and where don't they? Um, there's lots of simulations happening in the background. So um, strategy-wise, like the the race strategy is important. So what they do is analyze like what what types of decisions can we make on the track of when to do pit stops uh, and what scenarios are at play so imagine like when when uh when they're driving they always have a set of scenarios ready to go uh based on what will be the best outcome and that changes every lap and they have computer software to do that so imagine like there's a there's a there's a safety car situation they already know that should we pit or not they've already thought of that in in uh, um, you know in advance and you see that with the remote garage right right so they can only bring 60 people to the racetrack. Uh, they have another 45 people, uh, or sometimes more, sometimes less, at the race at the at the factory. Um, that they're all like like a virtual team uh, looking at the data, like NASA mission control almost. And uh, they are constantly uh, in parallel thinking of all the possibilities that we need to do. And they give advice and scenarios to the pit wall where they make the actual call to pull someone in or not. Um, so there's there's a, a whole bunch of data. Um, and scenario planning and then also when it comes to manufacturing the car like there's 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 huge investments in in simulation in aerodynamic simulation as well so computational fluid dynamics um they they are not allowed to use the wind tunnels that often so they have software to to kind of you know draw the new draw the new parts in 3d and then put it on a car and do a virtual wind tunnel simulation and see if it actually is an improvement or not like they have all those checks and balances, balances uh, along the way as well. And why are they not allowed to use the wind tunnel? I mean, it's a huge investment. Then why not allow to use it? Yeah, so the, the, the F1 regulating body is trying to reduce the costs for a team to be successful in the sport. Um, over the years, there's been a huge difference between the top performing teams and the lower performing teams. And it also reflects their budgets, right? The budget of... Red Bull and, and Mercedes is almost three or four times the budget of of a of a company like Williams, and um, that that it's it, it's always a un, it's never a level playing field. But what they are doing is they're trying to reduce the costs needed to ent enter the sport, so that actually teams are able to be successful uh, even though they don't have the biggest budget. Um, so so part of that is reducing the amount of testing on track, reducing the amount of uh, testing equipment. And just making making uh, making the sport more accessible. So that's their that's their objective. Then why is that important? Because you have in football, you have different leagues as well where you can de get demoted. So yeah, that's that's true. But then then again, like it's not that um, like it the 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 product the, kind of the the sport here is um, like eighty or ninety percent car and only ten or twenty percent human being in the car. So, so the, the effect of having a superior car is something that's so big on your ability to win races that it really, like for the lower teams, it's really impossible to keep up. And, um, that's not so much, uh, so, and that, that becomes a boring, boring thing to look at. So the, the, the challenge here is that if the sport becomes boring to look at, then viewership will go down, uh, which means sponsorship deals won't happen. Which means the whole the whole tower falls apart because if nobody watches and no sponsors want to pay because they're being watched, um, then you cannot sustain this 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 amount of budgeting uh, for any team. So to, for the sport to survive the long term, it needs to be appealing for people to watch, which means uh, we shouldn't just have two or three teams winning all the time.
Uh, that was indeed the angle that I want to get get at, because there still is a lot of resistance from the higher teams and the better teams to the winning teams when it comes to these kind of changes. In the in this the coming season, the 2022 season, there will be a lot of new rules, uh, and the budget cap is going to be more mm-hmm. regulated, but also the aerodynamics of the car. But there's still a lot of resistance. If you talk through it like this, it really sounds logical. Hey, if we're going to continue like this, we're going to shoot ourselves in the foot. We need to change. Still, there's resistance. Why? Yeah, I mean, if you're the winning team, you don't want to give up your, your resources and give other teams a better chance to win, right? So, so of course, the long-term perspective is logical. But in the short term, you want to make sure that your advantage doesn't go away that much. Um, and if you are the winning team, you don't feel that problem that much because you are getting sponsorship deals. Um, so, so there is a disbalance there. Um, I am glad they have been able to uh, to to break through this this uh, catch twenty two. I mean, in the past it was it was not possible, but now teams are open to it, um, and the regulating body have been able to find ways to do that. Part of that is, for example, you know, Red Bull didn't want to also didn't want to lay off a lot of people, uh, right? They, you know, it's also about protecting people's jobs, and with the budget cap, you cannot hire the amount of people that they had. So one of the things they did with the move to manufacture their own engines is that they moved a lot of people from the from the race team to the engine manufacturing team so that those people could keep their jobs uh, because the engines are outside of those uh, budget and cost caps um, thinking also that that's a product that can be delivered to other teams as well so yeah there's many things at play and obviously um, uh, they want this sport to continue to be attractive and red bull definitely as a marketing focused company they they understand that um um, and um, oh, yeah, I think it will be better for the sport. Um, and then hopefully the amount of driver skills required to compete goes up versus the amount of product, uh, like kind of more technology thing. It's, it's, the balance might shift as well. People are going to be able to follow closer and stuff. Do you feel personally, as a spectator of the sport, that now indeed the balance or the driver capabilities is too few at this point? Yeah, I mean... That, that that is, I mean, yeah, that is the case. Um, obviously, as a as a Dutch person, I love the fact that Max Verstappen finally has a car to compete with, um, and um, that you know, um, up until now, he wasn't able to do that. And it's the same person; it's just a different car. And now suddenly, he's it's not that he got a lot better. <laughs> he he was already pr- pretty good from the beginning. Um, so yeah, it's it's quite clear that the car advantage is is too big uh, to, to to really be. I mean, it's a mix of things. There's an interesting midfield battle happening, but I'm really curious what happens if we sh- if it's sh- shaken up. It, Formula One will never be a sport where all the cars are the same, um, because because that's 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 Formula Two, that's Formula Three, that's other other classes of sports. Formula One is always about building the fastest car and then being able to race it uh, faster than your competitors. Yeah, and the innovation, indeed. Yeah. What do you see in our businesses, if you will put it like that? Um, the impact of having a too powerful product. Hmm. I don't know. What do you think? Well, if I look at Google and Apple these days, I think mm-hmm. they're getting a lot of crit- criticism for going back to the office, for instance. And that's, I think that's also where your, where a potential pitfall might be that you're so big, so known, you put yourself so out there that anything that you do, because you're on the absolute top of business, anything that you will do is is under a magnifying glass. Um, yeah. Yeah, so we have a Dutch saying for that. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if, if there's an English version of 
high trees get most wind, right? It's, it's, a uh, um, that is true. And I think, um, the biggest risk for these companies is that they become lazy and complacent. Um, and I see that in a lot of companies we work with, right? If you go to, to some sectors where money has always been flowing easily, uh, without any problems, there's a culture of not going fast and there's a culture of not really caring about the, the work you do and just, you know, making your paycheck every month. And I think that's a dangerous position to be in, right? If you don't, if you don't break out of that thinking and, and idea, then, then, uh, you're out of there, you're going to be out of work. Right? I mean, um, for example, looking at the financial industry with banks, there's so much innovation happening outside of the, the, the sector outside of the traditional banks. Um, that, that, that's an example of a sector where, where there's disruption happening and, uh, some banks are catching up, others aren't. Um, because You're hinting also, at cryptocurrency or? No, well, cryptocurrency is one aspect, but I'm also thinking about, um, innovation in, in, in customer journeys, uh, modern, modern banks, challenger banks coming up. Uh, there's, there's so much happening and that, that whole, that whole industry has gone through disruption in the last 10 years. Um, uh, but the, 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 the work we've done with them, it really depends on what types of teams you are in, but some teams are really like, yeah, whatever. I mean, <laughs> I'm here to just get my paycheck. I'm, I'm basically kind of disengaged from my job. I just do here to make a lot of money and, and then I go home and then there's, that's why I do my, the, the stuff I really enjoy. So the, the, the whole, the whole challenge is how do you get an organization where everyone is engaged to really come with their talents and do the best work of their lives instead of just seeing work as a place to just make a paycheck and go home as fast as possible. I'm not sure. I haven't been working in the financial sector. So please correct me if I'm wrong, but I always associate the financial sector with the wrong uh, incentives. So in this case, you're known, I'm assuming, with the work from, for instance, Daniel Pink, Purpose mm -hmm. Mastery. Mm -hmm. and the work that kind of contradicts to what the financial sector is in my head. And so what's your picture on this? Well, I think, I think banks have, have been changing a lot. Um, like the, 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 the organization I've worked with, they have, they have shifted their, their bonus structure. They've removed individual bonuses also partially because it's going to be regulated because there was so much, um, uh, absurd things happening. And basically people were driven by, by their bonuses and were able to do unethical things. I think that those are some of the excesses that we've seen uh, that are going to be drilled down. I do think that especially in the financial sector, the, the adoption of agile teams have been quite, has been quite big actually. Like uh, there's been, there's been a lot of, especially starting in it, but then flowing into other places, you see more and more agile teams and even going through to full self-managing teams in certain places. So there's also this idea of innovation and this idea of um, uh, if we have good autonomous teams that are mission-based and mission-driven and we basically let them alone, then that goes that goes well. Um, some of those shifts have been accompanied with with um, big layoffs of management layers, which are kind of sad, but also were probably quite necessary um, for that to get out of their current solidified way of working. Sometimes it's just needed to lay off and reconfigure your whole organization. Hey, we're near at the end of the of the show. Um, what has been your biggest takeaway from the whole work that you did with Formula X that inspired you in your usual job? Yeah, so um, the continuous focus on how to go faster. 
um, that that is the key thing that you see in F1. Um, and if you read Formula X, that's the red thread in the story as well. Um, so yeah, so Formula X is a business fable. It's not a, a dry management book. It's just a, it's a story of somebody who's trying to accelerate or radically accelerate the way they work and the 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 how they can get the product faster to the to the customer. Um, and they they use inspiration from F1 to get there. Um, this relentless focus on does it make the car go faster? Like anything that anything that you can do to make the car go faster, let's do that. And if that means um, uh, technical innovations, or if it's about reducing organizational drag, we talk in the book about that. Like you have aerodynamic drag, which you can use to go faster uh, if you do re re reduce that. But organizational drag is all the processes and meetings and management layers that are in the way for teams to go faster. Like this continuous focus on reducing that is, um, is what I use in every, every day when I work with clients. Awesome. I hope people listening can take that away too. Cool. Where can people interact with you? Where can they find your work? Where can they order the book? Yeah. So you can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter, uh, as Jurian Kamer, just my name. You'll find me, um, and Formula X is available as a book uh, in all the popular bookstores, online and offline. Um, if you want to read more about the book, you can go to www.formula-x.co. Um, so that's where you can find it. Awesome. Looking forward to hearing more. Julian Kamer, thank you very much again for being here. You're welcome. I would like to thank our guest and you, the listener, for joining us again in this episode of Mastering Agility. This podcast is part of a series, so make sure to follow us on all the platforms that we provide. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Google Podcasts, you name it. Make sure to go to the website of agilitymasters.com to subscribe to the newsletter in order to stay up to date on the latest information. Check out the show notes and how you can engage with our guests and myself to provide feedback, ask questions. Um, more general inquiries, whatever. I would love to hear from you. Next week, we have another amazing episode lined up. So make sure to tune in again. Until then. <laughs>